Having a Gas is the podcast that chats to the great and the good of the creative industries. And in particular, finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for cooking to, for dancing to, f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with Grace Francis, a forward-thinking tech impresario, whose enthusiasm and expertise in digital has caused them to ricochet through several major agencies, most recently being snatched by Karma to serve as their chief experience officer. Okay. Hello, Grace. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Thanks for joining me from what looks like a very cool place is that you're working from home setup. Yeah, I'm at home. I'm on a wharf right on the River Thames. So it looks really beautiful, but it's absolutely freezing. Yeah. The heating is cranked up and I'm wearing like three tops. And it's only October. I know. Yeah, yeah. I I, I did it to myself. I bought the house in summer and now uh, I didn't think that through at all. So I'm being punished slightly. Yeah, but that's, um, you know, it's a mythological trope if I ever heard one but um, yeah how has uh, well there are two things two big jumping off points I want to uh, explore first being the obvious one how has the uh, working from home experience been for you I found it really enjoyable I think um, I think I've just discovered I'm a bit of a house cat yes so a lot of the work that I do um, is stepping away processing information pattern recognition um, and then coming back and presenting that to another group of people and saying if we got to this point of truth and so having time to be able to focus and to think listening to music at home having control over the environment also extending to things like lighting actually feels like a huge luxury and then when we come back together again uh, you can enjoy other people's brains and other people's thoughts uh, but it's for me it's a really really nice balance yeah and so what is the word on the grapevine at Kamarama about how the return is going to look when it happens? Because we know Ogilvy is saying we're going to do a 3-2 model and some people have abandoned their offices altogether. Is there any plan at the moment? So I think um, really we're owned by Accenture, so Accenture will keep us informed on that. They're really good about um, putting our requirements and our safety first. Um, but I think for a lot of people, it's less about what will it be coming back and what will it be like as we go on. So um, really specifically, you know, do you want to be working a nine to five? Uh, and Karma were incredibly good about considering people's holistic lives. So if you're a parent um, or your lifestyle is set up in a certain way that needs to accommodate, they're really, really good at considering who you are and what you need. And I think in many ways, this will just accelerate that, not just for my company, but lots of companies. I think we'll start to recognize that balance of life. Uh, I think things have changed a lot in the last 10 years or so where technology has meant that, you know, the division between working and not working has been blurred for a lot of people, pretty much anyone in an office. Um, and uh, that, that, that blur has only increased, I think, for a lot of people in lockdown um, and in the sort of spaces between as we're sort of in the longer term pandemic view. And I think we're now starting to recognize how important it is to look after ourselves as individuals. Uh, but I also think companies are um, really working hard to think about what the employee experiences. Um, and again, from a professional point of view, I think I'm talking with a lot of uh, people around, um, you know, is employee experience actually an essential part of, of customer experience? So not just how you treat um, your customers and your potential customers, but how you treat your own employees and how you look after them. So I think I think we're all thinking about that quite a lot, really. 
Yeah, like everything, you have inputs and outputs, and uh, you know the input affects the output. When I had a discussion with Ben Kay for this podcast earlier this year, he was talking about the uh, traditional experience of London advertising, work, 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 evenings, weekends. It's a pitch. It's a pitch. We get all hands on deck. And are you sensing then there's going to be a slight re-shifting of the balance because uh, towards... Uh, like you said, employee experience and how it is to work for the client and work for the brand as well, uh, because potentially because this has been global across the board. It hasn't just affected our industry. Therefore, you know, the conversation can be had. Oh, no, frozen. Are you okay? You were so close to the end of your question. Okay, let's see how that behaves. Thank you for your patience. No, no, thank you for... Um, for uh, being the technical uh, help that we needed, um, yeah. So obviously, you just we just got to witness your your broadband go up against your mobile provider, and we saw who came out on top. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, it's really interesting how uh, one of the things about being at home, being isolated at home, is that uh, one, you're responsible for that yourself, uh, but two, how easy it is for one thing to snap and fall away, and you don't have the infrastructure of a team of people to sweep in. Um, I found the same thing with experiences like this. I'm so used to, um, for video recording, walking in and uh, there being a camera person and someone fitting you with a mic and saying, sit here, look here, do that again. Yeah, ready to go. Uh, and you realise um, even the physical labour, I say it's like an incredibly tiny person, like the physical labour of um, lining up a second camera angle and getting it right and leaping over the furniture. So um, I'm definitely looking forward to uh, everybody having a job and being very appreciative for what those jobs are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, the Zoom revolution has, has turned everyone into their own production assistants, hasn't it? Everyone's doing their own angling. And, you know, I just spoke to a strategy exec at um, one of the, you know, one of the other major agencies. And um, it started with, you know, Black, uh, blacked out against um, light coming into the cameras. Oh, let me turn that round. And then, so yeah, it's been an interesting experience watching everyone adjust to this. But again, you appear to have it down because, you know, the angle is good. The backdrop is good. Just enough green to feel like we're, you know. Oh, yeah, close plant. There we go. Bit of yeah. humanity. So, uh, the, so the working from home experience has brought about uh, some potential for transformation in the way we all work, which has been uh, uh, a really interesting thing to talk about it. And... For a lot of people, it's been a, uh, a long-promised utopia. You know, one day we'll all be able to do this. And then when we were forced into it, uh, there's been mixed feeling about how sustainable it is, like socially or otherwise. So um, do you think it's going to be a case of trying to meet both of those needs at once? It's meeting the needs of the social environment, but also meeting the needs of work-life balance. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think in many ways this is a false test, right? So um the New York Times did a really beautiful photo essay on the things that were abandoned in their office. So people's dying plants and um, uh, half a sandwich, uh, but also like your headphones. Because I don't think people understood when they were stepping away from their offices how long it would be. Uh, I don't think any of us fully grasped how long we might be in this situation for um, working remotely. Um, but having said that, if you look at, you know, a lot of scale tech organisations have been doing this for a really long time and doing it incredibly well. Um, at the beginning of lockdown, I saw um, one organization had uh, like a three-day conference 
And they converted the conference to online and then added things to the program because they were that organized. They were so accustomed to doing things remotely. They were like, great, we now have some more time. We don't have to shuffle people from building to building. Here's a few extra speakers. Um, and I think when we move forward, what we'll actually be looking at is um, the idea of freedom to, to go out, to engage, to have a bath in the middle of the day or um, read your kid a story or whatever else you've got going on in your lives, but also freedom from. And in that case, that's freedom from um, being stuck uh, in perhaps a, a normative time uh, to be clocked into work and everybody having to be physically present in the same space, but also freedom from being incredibly stressed about trying to quantify the risk of popping down to the bakery. Um, and is you know, and those risks aren't absolute. So the risk today is different than the risk tomorrow based on the people who are there and, and government guidelines and lots of other different things. So I think in the future, we'll actually be able to try this and um, enjoy it holistically rather than just noticing the patches of what feels good. Yeah, uh, that's, there's a few questions I had. I just blew the secret. I've looked down at my notes, which I ne hope never to refer to, but uh, I had some questions sort of lined up and you've already teed up a number of them. And so I'm trying to figure out which angle to go at first. I think uh, one thing I wanted to get from you is which brands you think have really stood out and done well during the pandemic and people who have adapted well? Yeah, so I think I think it depends on at which point in the pandemic we're talking about. So yes. um, at the very, very beginning, I think when everyone was feeling chaotic, there was this period of time where we were moving into lockdown and um, the rules weren't yet written and everybody felt a little bit untethered. And I think there were a lot of brands there that put out um, creative work that just said, hey, we care about you and we're thinking about you. Uh, and that sense of purpose and that sense of recognition actually made a real difference. And um, I think we saw that a lot with our client requests as well. So when we first started in lockdown, I was at Droga 5 and um, Droga 5 New York were uh, responding very, very early uh, with a piece of work from Facebook that had a poem by Kay Tempest. And uh, at that very, very early stage, I think what we wanted to know from any organisation, any organised body at all, um, was that uh, we're in this together, we're thinking about each other, we're concerned, and um, there's an element of humanity and there's an element of protection. We're at a really, really interesting point where um, this is, I think, the first acute time we've considered ourselves as a planetary group of people. To sound, yes. you know, not to sound too much like a Star Trek episode, um, you know, you, you can talk about sustainability in the environment, which obviously affects all of us, but that's a very, very slow, cumulative thing that we can, many of us will take our eye off. Um, and this is the first acute moment where we look together and say, wow, there is no way to escape this. We're in it together. And um, showing humanity, vulnerability, um, emotional investment and intellectual investment at that time, I think was a really, really important thing for a lot of brands to be doing. Yeah, I, re I read a piece that you had uh, written, or maybe it was an interview that transcribed where um, where you were discussing this and uh, the drop-off of small talk as a phenomenon, because when we were first doing our Zoom meetings early on, how are you? Couldn't be met with, yeah, all right. It's like the sky is falling. How, do, you know, how, how are we all doing? And I, I absolutely take your point as well about this being a global moment. And the first truly global moment that I remember in my lifetime where Australia, Iran, China, Russia, Texas, and, you know, Aberdeen were all facing the same issue at once. Yeah, yeah, it will, it will, it will absolutely shape all of us. And I think we don't really know how it will shape us as we go forward. I think there's an interesting thing there about, yeah, absolutely small talk goes. 
Uh, and it means when we engage, we are inquiring after each other's well-being in a really genuine way. Uh, I think as we progress, there's been a very interesting thing. I was doing a study um, for clients at work around how people behave through screens and the differences that we see. Uh, and often when we look at someone famous through a screen, um, because we don't have that proximity element, the, the closeness of them, the excitement, the sort of neurochemical response to being in the same room as that person, whether that's, you know, a play or a gig or being in the audience of, you know, a shoot. Um, what we ask for through screens is more intimacy. So we're expecting them to be more vulnerable. We want, we want to know um, the gender reveal um, of a celebrity's baby. Uh, we want to start seeing them vulnerable the moments before they walk on stage to deliver a speech. It's not enough to see the speech given and the award given. We want the vulnerability beforehand. We're trying to make connections through a screen where primarily, you know, our eyes are fed, but our other senses are starved. Um, the question of whether we have a right as a viewing public to um, famous people's vulnerability is, is a really, really pertinent one. But I do think the same thing is happening with our individual connections as well. We both want to feel more connected to the other person. We want to see what they're feeling. But we're also inquiring after their well-being and wanting to show ourselves uh, holistically to bring an authentic representation of ourselves to work, to a pub quiz, to whatever it is, where you can say not just how I am in this hour, but you can also start saying, well, these are the things going on in my life. Uh, and I think that does ultimately lead to better connection, uh, better human connection also when you're thinking about work, it leads to better work because you're able to bring uh, an intersectional, inclusive uh, presentation of yourself to work. You can say, oh, you know, well, some of us have the privilege of saying I've got kids in the next room uh, or I need to go tonight to my therapy or my physiotherapy or whatever it might be. I recognise I'm saying that and not everybody does have that, but I think there are more and more pockets of organisations where uh, you can say this is who I am holistically. And then when you're making work, especially our kind of work, uh, that reflects through and hopefully to someone, you know, watching it in a different part of the country or a different part of the world who doesn't quite have that yet. Yeah, yeah. And I think something something that you mentioned there that that really, um, that I, re I remember feeling quite uh, profoundly is obviously I attended a lot of gigs when I was, I'm not going to say younger, like I'm old, but, you know, not now, obviously. And there was always, I never noticed it till you put your finger on it there, there was always a particular reaction when you see someone for real for the first time you've only ever experienced through the screen um and i remember the first time uh this summer that i saw someone who who we work with who had not seen for real since march uh had a similar kind of effect it kind of throws you a bit you forget how tall people are you forget what they really look like and do you think there's going to be a strange back to work moment when everyone gets that where you know there'll be people i I don't know if you it's because you mentioned you've been at you were at Droga Five at the start of the pandemic, so my inference from that is that you've not been in the Kamarama office yet with the whole team. Or yeah, so I've been because Droga and Kamarama are both owned by Accenture Interactive. Uh, I've been to the Kamarama office for drinks and presentations, but as a guest. Uh, but a lot of the team I'm working with. I haven't met in person. And actually, there's a load of freedom to that. You know, often we're, we're a little bit further back, so you can see a bit more of who I am. But lots of time, we're head and shoulders in a box. Nobody knows I'm five foot two. It's, it's really free. I'm like a normal height person. Yeah. Um, 
but also you don't you don't get to see personality, persona, opinions, tastes through clothes anymore. You get to see them through the backdrop of someone's house. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens if if relationships transform at all when you all come back together for the first time, or yeah, yeah what people's reaction will be. I've also had a really interesting experience of making a couple of good friends during lockdown. So I, I was doing a presentation talk for a, a project I do outside of work, which is basically applying design thinking to human challenges. So using all the skills that we use to help corporate innovation for scale businesses and apply them to really granular, big and small decisions in your life. And traditionally, I explain this and I show a tool and then I ask people to sort of jump on the line and talk about a problem. And uh, I had this really amazing experience where I shared a tool and spoke to someone and I sort of said afterwards, look, we've, we've done this. You've been really brave to do this in front of 70 people that you don't know. Uh, we'll do a follow-up call and I can I can finish, tidy some stuff up for you um, and just take our time and explore things a bit deeper when you haven't got a bunch of strangers watching you. Yes. And um, me and this woman have now become really close friends. We, uh, we text every day. And uh, she started off with the pandemic uh, in a different country and has come back to the UK. She lives... 20 minutes away from me um but it's not appropriate for us to see each other so uh, it's really interesting that we yeah we've never shared the same physical space and she's become a really important person in my life yeah that there's going to be there are going to be uh films about this and novels no doubt in the future i do wonder actually how many people will use the covid19 pandemic as a backdrop for their future fictional stories but that um sounds like one that's ripe for um for retelling, uh, but going back into mm, more, uh, well, I want to know more about how you, you know, where you started and how you got into this game, and then we'll see what's going to happen going forward. So, uh, yeah, what was your, what brought you into our industry, first of all? So, yeah, interestingly, I started off in scale tech and I um, started working for. Uh, I moved over to Dentsu Aegis, and so it's still an agency model, but far more technically plugged in. And um, after a while at Dentsu, I got a call from Gray and uh, was head of what was then called like a head of innovation role. And I remember people in Dentsu saying, they don't mean the same thing you do. They don't mean what we mean when we say technology and innovation and creativity mean something else. And I was like, well, now I'm definitely going to turn up and go and have a look. And um, that was a really exciting process and being pulled closer and closer to creativity and to uh, the ability to use narrative storytelling as a tool uh, to change people's opinions and change people's views. And within that, also recognising that um, the kind of work that I do means that we can change our relationship with clients to say, uh, traditionally in a creative agency, your remit might be this big. Um, and using experience as uh, any moment that someone's engaging with your brand, even if they're just thinking about your brand, is experience. It's, it's creating that consistent and holistic response. And so suddenly, uh, creative strategists, their worlds just gets wider, and you're allowed to pick up any, any element that you want to. And that's incredibly exciting. And I just ended up from there um, really falling in love with this world. Uh, moving over to Droga, spending a couple of years there, and I came on board Droga um, knowing that the Accenture acquisition was happening and to get them bedded in and to build experience out, plug in these very two different worlds and connect them together. And now my next chapter is um, a more scaled range doing similar thing for Karma So 
Um, Cameron was obviously been uh, with Accenture for a lot longer, for almost five years now. Uh, but telling that story and carrying it through, just recognizing that creatives have these new sets of tools available to them, which can change the output of work in really exciting ways. And so for me, that just was like a continuous privilege. It's really pleasurable. Right. So the kind of role that you occupy is not necessarily one that would have existed 25 years ago. Is that right? Is it taking yeah. advantage of the new landscape we live in? Yeah. And I found, that, I found that actually really interesting. A few years ago, we were talking to some grads and just saying, yes, absolutely. My my job didn't exist when I was going to school. I, it, it wasn't available. And that will continue to happen. And that actually recognising for people who are starting out in their careers, that critical thinking and um, creative response are two core processes and tools that will carry you forward regardless of how jobs change. Yeah. And I think that becomes... Uh, really exciting because we talk about what's possible rather than what's permissible. Uh, and, uh, you know, those rules are changing continuously. I also think that we're seeing a lot of clients come to creative agencies to answer really wicked, difficult problems that exist in the world because creative agencies are known for applying a certain alchemy. Uh, the responses and the answers of what makes something resonate with us emotionally are so often met through leaps that aren't logical alone. So uh, when you come up with a really big challenge about sustainability um, or a cultural shift in perception, asking a creative agency is fantastic because, again, uh, they don't think about the feasible. Uh, they start from a point of, right, what, well, what do we need to do and what should we do? And then let's work out how to make it happen rather than being boxed in and hemmed in. Uh, so I think we're seeing more and more uh, relevant and exciting and purposeful briefs coming through as well. That's interesting, because when you say being boxed in, were you referring to boxed into uh, traditional media ways of thinking? I think I'm talking, yeah, I'm talking about that, but I'm also talking about what is possible to do. Uh, so starting out and saying, we know that this is possible, where I remember years ago working with a creative and the challenge was to create an artificial intelligence for the science museum. And he sat down and was like, right, let's reinvent God. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Uh, right here we are over here and the tech people are going okay well here, here's our tech stuff and this is what we can do uh, we can give you a chatbot but somewhere between let's reinvent God which will acknowledge is like a quite a precocious thing to say um, and we can make a chatbot is a really good space in between and it just means that the shape of the brief and the shape of the permissible world gets shifted and creatives in particular but all creative agencies I think are really really good about saying well actually what do we want to do what would be cool to do? What would be impactful to do? And then building out from there. Yeah. And whilst creativity naturally has, has to have constraints, um, that is always the uh, ambition is to think, what do we want and how are we going to make it happen? Not what can we already do? What we means tested? Because that runs against presumably the core ethos of the creative agency. You know, what's, uh, what's expected? Um, which is something that's coming up a lot uh, recently in these discussions is, you know, how do we break out of what we're expected to do? Because mm, for the first part, I was mostly talking to uh, creatives and, um, you know, one of the discussions that would often come up is if it looks like the kind of work that you expect, then it's wrong because you expect it. If it looks like a traditional ad and sounds like one, then um, you should be moving in a different direction. Is there any either work that you've been part of or work that you've seen 
that you think has really done a good job of moving the conversation forward and not doing what's expected, but being very effective? Yeah, I think um, in, in terms of like long legacy campaigns, I think I'm going to talk about Droga 5 again, I'm sorry, but a lot of the work is very good. Um, I think the New York Times campaign that's gone on for a number of years and a recent iteration came out has really shaped what it means for creative agency to work with another organisation. So specifically, we're talking about journalists who uh, traditionally would not enjoy advertising. If you think about the relationship between journalism and advertising, it is fraught. Uh, one has propped up the other. Um, the industry has uh, morphed and changed repeatedly. But what we've seen there is by making the journalism the core of the story and sharing the value of free press and, and communication, extending even beyond the New York Times themselves, uh, suddenly there's a relationship where the advertising is showing the journalism. It feels like short-form documentary. It feels invigorating and fresh and relevant and nothing like an advert. And it feels like you're being informed about something that you desperately need to hear about. That's incredibly exciting. And it ends up uh, with that relationship informing uh, you know, those people, the people who are working in the newsroom who have uh, respect and interest for the role of what advertising is playing and doing for them. So for me, um, you can't really ask for anything more to have evoked such a change uh, and to play such a significant role. Uh, and I, I think at its best, you know, creativity, creative briefs and advertising starts to shape how we feel, not just about an individual brand, um, but about an industry uh, and conceptually uh, being given the right information, being given the truth uh, in a way that is accessible to all and often free is, is essential. Yeah. Let's uh, on the on the subject of um, brand perception, which is uh, I got the impression that's a big part of your remit, isn't it? It's about what the brand is doing when they're not actually in front of you, what they're doing in, in your perception of the brand. And um, an example I, I wanted to turn back to was uh, hooking into the question of how brands are affected uh, by the personality of their leaders, because. I think we've noticed, I don't know whether it was always the case, uh, but we've no, I, we've noticed in the last 10 years that there have been some examples of where we might really like the offering of a brand, we might like the product that they're giving us, but um, the perception of the front man or you know, front, front person of that brand uh, can affect the perception of it. And the most specific measurable example I can remember was the share price of Apple rising and falling with Steve Jobs' uh, health conditions. Because the implication there was, well, the innovation all comes from the leader, which is clearly not the case. And so when there is no leader, we expect that to go down. Yeah, so I think I do think it's very interesting that we've moved from a position of seeing corporations as faceless entities, and we start to recognise, uh, you know, who, who's, who's steering the ship. And that's not just the CEO, sometimes that's the full board or the full exec team. And this isn't just us as, you know, adults operating in the world. You can say a 10-year-old can tell you who's in charge of Amazon, uh, who's in charge of Microsoft. I know what this person looks like. Uh, I recognize this person as a figure who exists. For me, this is a really fundamental, important shift. Um, corporations have the ability to, uh, as organized bodies, uh, shape our culture, shape our society, uh, lean on legislation when they choose to, uh, and contribute to society as well. So what we're starting to see is that a brand is uh, a group of people rather than uh, an institution and the corporation itself is run by a body of people. Now, what's interesting is sometimes with the Steve Jobs case, 
you end up tying an individual, a single individual in their personal life, their personal choices, their opinions, and you, you, know, you see it in his biopic, um, you attach that with the whole organisation. But actually, I think what it does is bring a humanity uh, to corporations. And it also means that those of us who are sitting in positions of authority and leadership uh, must be expected to be scrutinised, not quite the way a politician would be, but certainly to accept that to mean to lead a company right now means to be in the public eye. And that doesn't just have to be one of the largest companies in the world. Uh, that's any organisation that is choosing to sit uh, on the world stage and contribute um, at a societal level uh, and an individual level. I think we used to think about what I do about brand experience and um, customer experience as what does an individual's experience feel like as they engage with a brand you know what happens when you call your telephone provider once every three years or when you upgrade your mobile or when your pizza delivery is late but actually what we're also talking about is that collective um semiotic view that cultural view of how you are perceived internally and i think one of the biggest changes is that idea that um any scaled organization isn't a faceless corporation is in fact a group of people and the people sitting at the heart of that are accessible to you you can uh, tweet to them or you can write to them you can uh, engage them and talk and uh, that can only be good do you think um do you think apple was the first major example of that certainly the first one i can remember you know uh, what you were referring to before is how we didn't used to think of individuals with their their brands we didn't used to think of who the chief exec of Coca-Cola was or the chief exec of McDonald's. It didn't, as you say, make news. But now the, uh, you know, the Zuckerberg is attached to Facebook. You know, Jeff is attached to Amazon. Steve was attached to Apple. Do you think that's going to be more the case? And is, it, is that a recent development or is that just my biases, my, the, my lack of knowledge? I think it probably depends what you're into, doesn't it? So uh, I definitely think uh, tech that's ubiquitous in our lives uh, plays a significant role. So um, when Apple release new products, everyone in my house comes around and watches it live. And, um, you know, it's it's a it's a nerd version of the Super Bowl in some respects. Yes. It's a really exciting moment. And so because the products they're creating um, are evolving in our lives and so personal to us, you know, I'm sitting here with like two phones um, and they, they play a significant role. But also it's because you're interested in them. So uh, I do a lot of work in, in banking and fintech. So I'm really interested in, in who's leading there. That's not just about professional connection. It's also about um, taking an interest in how that part of the world is evolving, what's happening with open banking. Um, what roles uh, do banks and uh, neobanks have to play in our lives? I think I've just probably told you I'm really boring. Um, but I think, I think we're going to see more of that because actually if you are a scaled corporation, um, you are on the world stage and you're expected to have a response. Uh, what we've seen in lockdown is, I think, a really surprising element that you can it can be your job to deliver someone's groceries and suddenly there's a lot of pressure on you to, to determine um, everybody getting their groceries or the right people, the people who need it most to have those deliveries at home, whatever it might be. These are absolutely extreme and unlikely circumstances if you think you know your, your job before the pandemic was to make sure people got the right organic carrots um it's it's a real shift and i think a lot of organizations are doing incredibly well and uh, have adjusted admirably but the result of that is when we come out the other side gradually slowly we are expecting those kind of relationships with brands we want to know what are your belief systems how, how did you operate in covid 
uh, you know, that will be an interview question that's asked on either side of the table. You go for a job, what did you do? And what did your company do? How did you help your employees? How did you help society? Marketing trends. Um, brand purpose is having a real moment right now. And what you were just describing about how did your company behave and what do you believe in uh, being a relevant question. Um, sounds like it, it leans towards that area. So I've, I've, one of the things I have uh, tried to ask everyone is why do you, first of all, do you agree that we're in the midst of a, a, a social purpose marketing uh, moment and uh, if so uh, what brought it about or you know why has it happened yeah so I think we saw I, I do agree with them I think we saw obviously um, actually over a year ago now an accord in place where large corporations 181 corporations um, led out of the states were saying we are not going to judge the performance of our organization on profit alone um, profitability is not the one element that we will judge us on we actually need to consider um, our accountability within the world and what, what measures do we need to take? And I think at the time, a lot of us were thinking about sustainability. Um, and I think what we've seen through COVID, through a global pandemic, but also through Black Lives Matter, through some of the um, um, global repositioning of laws uh, around uh, rights for uh, gay and trans people, um, we're in a really, really difficult spot where I think organisations are starting to understand we can't just pursue uh, one line that perhaps affects us. And we, we can't consider um, weighing out the balance of what our organisation contributes and then um, what we need to do to show support in that area. We actually need to look at a far more holistic point of view. Um, and in doing so, I think we need to be in a position where we say, how can we as agencies start supporting that very complex, nuanced element of saying lots of things are happening in the world at once, how can we engage in the right ways, not just at the level of this is okay, but what do we need to do to um, affect real change? Why do you think brands are more concerned about satisfying the, appealing to the values of their consumers than they used to be? I think some of that is about um, the connected world. I think that's about, um, we spoke about this moment in history where we are a singular planet. And I think an extension of that is, um, you know, the last 10 or 15 years, we've had a very good understanding of current affairs from a worldview. You turn on the news and you know exactly what's helping, ha happening in other parts of the world. You can choose to tune in or, or out or not, but it is present and readily available to you. And I think another thing is happening where CEOs, um, the, the age of CEOs continues to be the same, the mean age where you get to that, but they are of a generation that's slightly younger and so slightly more plugged in. Um, again, to technology, which means uh, a more emergent view, perhaps, of what's going on. And so I think we're just all becoming far more self-aware and far more engaged. I would like to also say that I think that um, creative organisations, agencies um, and consultancies are going to their clients and saying, we also think this is important to you. So I, th I, think, it's, I think it's everybody leaning in together and saying, okay, we need to do something about that. That's individual accountability, laddering up. Uh, to an organization scale. So there's, um, I've got uh, a podcast coming out uh, in a few days with Steve Harrison, who wrote the book Can't Sell, Won't Sell, about uh, the trend in brand purpose. And I think, and I don't want to mis uh, 
misconstrue his uh, views here because he's going to speak for himself on the podcast. But I think one thing that uh, we were discussing was whether it's a moment of, in, in the religious sense, brands paying indulgences, you know, repenting for past misdemeanors. But it could be that also interfacing with something you're alluding to, the fact that we are in a global moment and if a brand misbehaves, you and I and everyone else we know can voice our disapproval of that brand and we get real-time feedback on the perception of that brand going up and down from the, the wider marketplace. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think um, I think it's a sort of sore point of view to suggest that brands are towing the line because people can um, have a go at them on Twitter. Like I, I think I think it's I think it's more complicated than that. I think we're starting to recognise as individuals that we need to be we're autonomous and we're accountable. And one of the privileges of getting into leadership is using that ability and that reach to influence others. So I think I think as we start to understand this, I think there's a lot of real sentiment for change. I think there's a lot of organisations saying, hey, I'm part of this, I want to do something. I do think version one did look like um, if I make if I make a product with a plastic bottle in it, I need to really think about recyclability. I need to think about um, that karmic balance. Uh, and, you know, that is happening. You know, a lot of organisations can have that element, but it's not enough just to say, uh, hey, we make, we use, we use um, plastic bottles and therefore we've made sure they're 100% recyclable now. Uh, well, what about all of the other issues um, that need to be considered holistically for your staff force, the people you engage with? And it's about recognising, you know, for, for realistic systemic change to happen, you need to have an organised institute to be behind it. Uh, that institute can, of course, be the government. Uh, it can be any um, any group that's organised, you know, religious groups are a really uh, useful example here, um, schools, universities. Um, but corporations are the really other obvious example. They are organised already, they are set up already, and they have the ability to make seismic change when they choose to. If you're at the top, you have an accountability to do it. And I think a lot of us, what I'm seeing from my clients is they're switched on, they're asking for that help of the best way to do it. Um, they're doing it themselves without us as well. Uh, so I think um, maybe that maybe that's the opposite view and is, is far more positive and sunny. But I think change doesn't come to um, in, you know, increase profitability alone or to increase uh, a couple of headlines or to decrease the number of people having a go at you on a Reddit forum or on Twitter. Um, I think it has to come from actually wanting to do something. Yeah, I do hope there is an optimist in me. I do hope that, uh, that the moment we're in does encourage a movement towards uh, su- sustainable profitability. I... Um, I'm encouraged by what you were saying about the call to greater individual responsibility. And hopefully, for me, the thing that uh, I always hope is clear is that uh, as much as the C-suite in a corporation is full of individuals, they all have the uh, potential to influence change because of the, you know, the, the organizations uh, at which they sit, the, that they sit at the top of. Uh, I always hope that it's, it's clear that we, you know, the, the, the younger people, who aren't at that level yet have the same level of individual responsibility for our actions. You know, they're, they are just another version of you, but you know, with a few more years and, you know, having climbed a bit higher. So, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, when, when you see people who aren't in a position of influence advocating for, you know, unethical behavior, 
but also criticizing the unethical behavior of big corporations or politicians. It's like, well, you know, they're just, they're, they're just doing what you're doing now, but with more people watching. So I'm hoping that this becomes a conversation between the consumer and the brand. It's like, you know, if you behave better, we will also behave better. Um, yeah. And I think, that, I think there's an element of autonomy, isn't there? It's about saying, recognise what you have control over and then lean into that as much as you can and affect the change that you want to change. And sometimes it might feel the only thing we can do is, is to tweet a moment of outrage at an organisation. And sometimes that can even be true, but a lot of the time it isn't true and there is more to be done. Um, and it's just recognising uh, both collectively and as individuals we, we have a lot of power at any point in our lives. Absolutely. Um, that, yeah, no, no, I, I 100% agree with that. And uh, I want to take a brief sidestep because uh, really I should only keep you for another 10 minutes. And there's something that I wanted to explore with you as a, uh, a tech expert and uh, someone with your, you know, your perspective. I was talking at the weekend um, with a couple of people about the uh, phenomenon of, you know, the, 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 acceleration of technological change and the difficulty that uh, policy and legislation is having at keeping on top of that wave and keeping up with it. And someone made the point that uh, the reason that big tech companies, you know, like Google, for example, uh, are not as regulated as you would expect is because they're kind of flying without a license because policymakers don't understand how the tech works. Because I, I don't know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm free associating here, but, you know, I suppose the question is, do you think in 20 years or so, when, let's say, the Senate and, the, and, and the, the House are full of people who do understand how to code and how to create software or whatever it is, that the, you know, it'll be slightly easier to regulate? Yeah, I mean, I think, so first of all, we're assuming that the regulation isn't there because of uh, literally understanding what the technology does. Well, actually, I think we know that legislation takes a very, very long time to be put into place and that the advancement of technology makes the Industrial Revolution look like a snooze fest. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this will be, uh, this, this period in time will be seen as the dark ages of the internet in terms of that we, we work, everybody's working things out. So um, I think there's a, I think there also needs to be acknowledged the idea of um, best intent. So when any scaled organisation employing technology uh, for all their users, uh, for all their customers, um, they have a good intent in mind. Uh, they have a plan to make something that is of use in the world and purposeful in the world. Holding all of that in mind, um, I think we will start to see a change in the next, probably not the next 20, even the next five and 10 years, where you see um, literacy and understanding, not just of technology, but how that technology is put together. Um, how that technology works and the implications of that, um, that will start to carry through into other areas of life as well. Um, but it's a lot to ask uh, for people who are trained to do one thing to suddenly learn about other things as well. And the other thing being technology is always really, really hard. That's why you have expert consultants um, who can guide you through that process. Um, so I, th I think it, it will come, it definitely will come. Um, but again, I'm still absolutely amazed to people uh, who choose to lean into technology who are younger than me and um, appetite and interest not just to learn but to employ the tools that they've used and um, that they've now learned about to actually put them out in the world and do something sometimes purposeful and meaningful other times just really frivolously cool 
Yeah, which is uh, worth it for its own sake. We can't forget that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay, so um, the only thing I haven't uh, really covered with you is anything about music, which is my particular focus. And so I suppose with the time we've got left, all I really need to know is uh, what are you listening to right now or what are you really emphatic about? Yeah, so um, I think this has been a really interesting year. I've um, How I listen to music has changed. I normally listen to music when I go out and create a long playlist of new and emergent music. I'm really enjoying Open Mike Eagle. He's just come out with a new album called Anime Trauma and Divorce. This is a 39-year-old hip-hop artist who went into therapy and ended up pouring the results into uh, a really, really incredible album. And the idea that uh, suffering can create art is probably a message I think all of us want to hear right now. Yeah. And I think that's hugely significant to all of us. Um, I have a woman I was mentoring uh, through design who decided to push into her first love of music, a woman called Sue Lee, who had an internet sensation at the beginning of the pandemic with a song called I'll Just Dance, which is basically, she described as having a breakdown on YouTube and making a song about it right. uh, and how to survive. And I think that kind of emotional ambition um, to carry through in this moment to get through hour by hour or when things go wrong uh, to lean into it. It doesn't always have to be about creating something. I think there's a lot of pressure to create, but the idea of saying, wow, yeah, things are hard. Um, I'm just going to go with it and I'm going to see what comes out. I think is a really exciting thing all of us should hold on to. Well, that's, yeah, that's like true creativity, isn't it? It's when you're not starting with a, a destination in mind, but you're just uh, just acting and reacting and seeing what comes out of it and then being like, well, that's what that moment was about. I think I'm also seeing like a lot of bands that I loved as a kid coming out with new music. I saw like Arab Strap, who haven't made music in 15 years, have just released a single. And um, a lot of that was they were saying we can't keep creating such ridiculous content when they're old men. And it turns out that the pandemic proves that they can. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's similar to, I think, like, you know, think about like no effects, like you're growing old, but you're not growing up. Uh, and that's been quite refreshing. Also, nostalgia is really useful right now, isn't it? Escaping to something, another time. Listening yeah. To, yeah. From another Nost- point in your life. Nostalgia, which was once, the, you know, I don't know if it's once described as, or even if the etymology of the word is, it's a kind of illness, nostalgia. It's a kind of sickness of the soul. And it's interesting that during a, uh, an, an actual literal pandemic is the time for that to be valuable. Yeah, well, we, I think we, um, whenever you remember something, you're remembering it with rose tinted glasses. Uh, and to fall, you know, music is so evocative, it's, it's literally a time machine, isn't it? Uh, and often when we associate a song, we're thinking about what we were doing at the time, a certain holiday or I don't know, getting dumped in university for the first time, whatever it is. Um, it's, it can really, really pull you back to that moment. And while we're stuck, not just stuck in a pandemic, but feel like we can't move forward, when we're stuck in our houses a lot, maybe we can't progress with our careers or our art or whatever it is, um, pulling back on other periods of time, um, that's a real escape. It's, it's a different way. It's a, it's a transcendent experience. Yeah, and that's um, really interesting that you uh, mentioned about it being a time machine. Because when I spoke to Sue Higgs, about this, uh, she said, what did she say? Uh, that if visual art is how you decorate space, then music is how you decorate time. Yeah, that's gorgeous. Yeah. Other creators are always having good lines. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's really nice. I think I think it, it makes a huge difference, actually. It's 
Um, and also, this is a really good time to listen to new music. You know, it takes your brain a while to accept new music. Music is good because it feels, you know, neurochemically, it feels familiar to us. Um, and this is why sometimes, you know, if you like new audio, you'll like LCD sound system, because even if you don't understand music theory, you're listening to the same thing. Exactly. Um, but actually, now is a great time to sit down and, and push through on those new albums. Yeah. Hey, well, if you could uh, send over a Spotify playlist, we'd, we, we would appreciate that. And we'll put it in the description on the, the YouTube. Yeah, I love that. I think my, uh, yeah, slightly scattered, but uh, <laughs> very free associated list.